passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. A uh, quick question for you. Does anyone like Harrison Ford movies? Yeah. Like, thank you, Mike. Somebody else. You know, like Harrison Ford's are some of my best movies. Yeah, and Dan, you too? You like them? Well, he had a movie back in 1993. Some of you older folks might remember it. Do you remember the movie called The Fugitive? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that a good one? The, the Fugitive is about uh, Dr. Is it Richard Kimball, I think his name was. He was a guy who was wrongfully accused of killing his wife. And through a series of circumstances, he was able to escape. And the U.S. Marshals were constantly chasing him. And it's one scene after another of him just barely escaping from the U.S. Marshals. And it's, I mean, the movie kept you on the edge of your seat. Right, guys? Yeah, it was, it was a good movie. Well, if you like Harrison Ford movies and you like those edge-of-your-seat kind of things like The Fugitive, then you should really like what we have been studying here at Crosswinds because we are in 1 Samuel. And at this point in the story, David is the fugitive. David is the one who is being hunted down. David is barely escaping with his life time after time. In fact, at this point, David has barely escaped with his life over a dozen times where God has helped it to be just a near miss when Saul wanted to destroy him. Now in The Fugitive, Dr. Richard Kimball was wrongfully accused of murdering his wife, but why is everybody chasing David, or, or should I say, why is Saul chasing David? It's just jealousy. He is insanely jealous of him, jealous to the point where he actually wants to kill him. Now what we've seen so far is... Um, when Saul has been chasing David after that last attempt where Saul tried to pin David's guts to the wall with, with a spear, what happened is David, through the help of his wife, Michael, got away. He went to Ramah, tried to hang out with Samuel the prophet, thought he would maybe be a little savior if he got out of town. That didn't work. We found there Saul made four more attempts on his life. But each time, God protected him. Finally, what David did is he ran from Ramah, and he ran back to Gibeah to see his best friend, Jonathan. And we could even hear the tension in David's voice when 1 Samuel chapter 20 began. David began saying to Jonathan, What have I done? Like, why does your father keep trying to kill me? David stressed. And God may have protected him a dozen times, but it's still a dozen near misses on your life. I and mean, that tends to wear on your nerves, doesn't it? I would think so. And David, at that point, actually encourages his best friend to tell his father a lie. The first time Jonathan has told his father a lie. And David hopes this lie will reveal to Jonathan Saul's true hatred for him. And it it works. Saul freaks out when he realizes he's been lied to, and he actually takes an attempt on his own son's life. And at that point, Jonathan and David depart. And David runs for his life. Now, um, at this point, 
there's a decisive change that actually takes place in Saul's strategy. I didn't mention it last week, but it's important to mention at this point. Prior to this, Saul has been committed to killing David. From this point forward, when he knows his own son is in league with David, he's not just committed to killing David, but he's committed to killing anybody who is helping, aiding, or abetting David. The hope at this point is Saul can isolate David. David hits a certain point here where he is depressed. David is alone. He has no place to go because he knows that everyone he will talk to in Israel is afraid to talk to him, afraid to help him because they know that Saul will most likely go after them. So David is fearing for his own life, but he's afraid for his own life, and he's afraid he can't get any help whatsoever. Now, at this point, David knows that God has declared he will be the next, he's the anointed chosen king of Israel, the next future king. But right now, it really looks pretty hopeless. That looks like a complete impossibility. David is hitting some of the lowest points in his life. He's super depressed, super lonely, completely isolated, and totally broken. I would ask you, have you been there? Depressed? Isolated? Lonely? Broken? Nobody around you? Nobody to support you. If you've been there, you can understand David in this chapter because that's exactly where he finds himself. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to go through the first verse of 21 through chapter 22, verse 5. What we find in these verses is David in his depression, loneliness, and isolation will do three things acts of desperation trying to save his own life. One act is completely downright sinful. The other act is completely, totally foolish. The third act is where he turns the corner and begins to come back to God. And all this took place because in David's fear, isolation, loneliness, and stress, he stopped turning to God He tried to turn to and trust in himself in place of God. And the results were disaster. So um, we're going to learn about how we can handle our times of depression, loneliness, fear, and stress by looking at how David learned to handle those exact same times in his life. So if you have your outlines, we'll be right on the top. Let's look at the first scene. It's called David and the Priests of Nob begins with this. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now Nob, it was only two miles uh, southeast of Gibeah, where we had him in the last chapter when he was with his friend, friend Jonathan. In fact, I'll show you where it is on a graphic. There it is. You can see where Gibeah it is. He just goes two miles right down to Nob. Now there's a number of historical details we do not have in the scripture, but I think we can piece some of them together. 
If you were with us earlier in the study of 1 Samuel, you know that Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was located. Shiloh was the place where Eli was the priest. But eventually uh, the, the ark was captured. Do you remember that by the Philistines? The Philistines came and they destroyed Shiloh. Somehow in this intervening time, it seems like the priests have relocated from Shiloh to this city called Nob. And uh, at that point, the tabernacle is in the city of Nob. Now, the ark remains in the city of Kiriath-Jerim, but this is where the priests have relocated to. Now, Himelech is called the priest. That doesn't mean he's the only priest. It's a way of saying he is the chief priest. When we get to the, other, the next chapter, we'll see there are other priests there as well. Now, David is real excited to see Ahimelech, but as we continue in this verse, we find out Ahimelech, because of reasons I just shared with you, is not real excited to see David. We read, And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? The word tremble means exactly what you would think. It means to physically shake out of fear. This is the same Hebrew word that was used to describe how Eli reacted earlier in this book when he heard that the ark had been captured by the Philistines, physically shaking in terror. That was what Ahimelech did when he saw David. Now, why would he shake in fear? Remember, I told you that Saul's plans to kill David are no longer private. We've seen in just the last few chapters that Saul has made it public of his intent to kill David. He has asked his servants to help him in killing David. And as I just clued you in on what's happened, Saul has now committed to be in opposition to and even kill anyone who he thinks will assist David. So when David shows up all by himself without an his military men with him, what is the first thing Ahimelech thinks? David is on the run. I better be careful to associate with him. I better be careful if I'm around him because if Saul finds out, it's going to be bad news for me. And that's exactly what he thinks is going on. Now last week we saw that David's faith was crumbling. He asked Jonathan to lie to his father. He's relying on himself instead of God. This continues. His faith continues to crumble. Now he's not going to just ask Jonathan to lie to his father. He's going to lie directly to the chief priest in the very house of God. And David said to to Ahimelech the priest, Oh, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. David is lying, completely lying. He is not on a top secret mission from King Saul. He's actually traveling alone. That's true, but it's traveling alone because he is running from King Saul. And even as he's telling the lie about how, where his men are, he doesn't know where his men are because there are no men, so he can't even make up a place. He doesn't even make, have a name of a place. He calls it just uh, such and such a place. Incidentally, if you want to catch a liar, 
I've discovered that's the best way to do it. You ask them for some specifics. And if they don't know any specifics, it's because they're not telling you the truth. David, as he's telling the lie, doesn't have specifics because he isn't telling the truth. Now, David is lying to Ahimelech because he's trying to gain Ahimelech's trust, calm Ahimelech's fears. Now, let's talk about lying for a moment. Lies, they may help you at the moment, but they will always ruin you in the future. Isn't that the way it works? Lies may help you at the moment, but they will ruin you in the future. As we get to the next chapter, we are going to see that David will really wish he had never told this lie. There are some incredibly painful consequences to this lie right here. Now, before you freak out too much on the fact that David is making a bold-faced lie to the priest, I think you need to understand that's sort of the whole point of what's happening here. David is no longer relying on God. His fear, his stress, and his loneliness, he is now turning to rely on himself instead of God. So he's deciding to do things like tell lies and half-truths to protect himself. But let's be honest. David's not the only one who does this, is he? Don't we do this? When there's stress in our life, when things are falling apart around us, maybe it's in work, maybe it's even in our marriage. Maybe it's even with our friends. Rather than telling the truth truth and testing God with the future, we bend the truth. We twist the truth. We lie and we deceive because we think it's wiser if we can figure out a way to save ourselves. Folks, we're really no different than David in this scene, are we? We're the exact same way. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us how to handle our times of stress and how to handle our times of anxiety. And if you haven't memorized this, I'd say this is your memory verse for the week. I would say to my Iron Man, this is your Iron Man verse of the week. It's simply this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. When you are worried, when you are depressed, when you have fear, get on your knees, give your worry to God knowing that he does care for you, he does love you, and he will respond to your prayers. That's what Peter says. But David is not going there. He's doing the exact opposite. And then we read this. Now then, David says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Very practical request. We know David has been hiding in the field in the last chapter for about three days. Sort of gets sort of hungry after hanging out in the field for a while. David has made a two-mile trek from Gibeon now to Nob. He's like, I need something to eat. Give me whatever you have on hand. Don't bake any bread. There's no time for that. Just give me what bread you have prepared. Well, obviously, the reason he can't bake any bread is because David has to get into town and out of town in a hurry. He knows he's a fugitive. Well, this provides a problem because there is no regular bread hanging around. The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. No wonder bread, (laughs) none of that stuff you buy at the store, but there is holy bread. 
if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now, what is this holy bread? There were 12 loaves of bread. I'll go ahead and put the graphic up there if you want. 12 loaves of bread that were baked each week and put into the tabernacle before God. And um, one loaf to represent each of the tribes. And those, tri those pieces, <laughs> excuse me, those loaves of bread were removed on the Sabbath day. They were there for a week. And then after being removed on the Sabbath day, the priests were allowed to eat that um, week-old bread. Except the priests obviously had to be ritually clean. Now, you wonder, what's this ritual clean thing? And what's all this? And he says, provided the young men have kept themselves from women. Well, hold on. Before I do that, let's just read that Leviticus 24 passage. I sort of skipped over it. This tells us about this bread. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual do. This is the bread that is the only bread that is available to Ahimelech at this time. And he says, I'll give it to you, David, provided your soldiers, his imaginary soldiers, have kept themselves from women. Now you wonder, what is going on there? Okay, um, sexuality is not an evil thing. These, however, the point is that these soldiers, imaginary soldiers, should be at this point, he says, to eat this bread sexually abstinent. Now, what is going on? Sex in marriage is a good thing. It is a gift. It is a blessing. But when it came to the tabernacle, when it came to ritual purity, any kind of fluids that had gone from your body would make you ritually unclean for a day. That could be a cut, so there's a flow of blood, or there could be the fluids associated with sexual activity, those would make you ritually unclean. And so Amalek says, hey, I'm willing to give you this bread, provided your soldiers are ritually clean. Now, David answers, and of course he continues his lie. David answered the priest, oh, truly women have been kept from us as, as always when I go on expeditions. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more holy today will their vessels be? How much more today will their vessels be holy? Ha, ah, I'm on a top secret mission. Of course we're ritually clean. Well, David is spinning lies after lies. There's no men out there. His vessels, the vessels of the men has to do with, it's a euphemism for their masculine parts. Of course they're ritually clean. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So at this point, Ahimelech does break God's law. He gives to David the bread that was to be kept only for 
the priests. Now, you wonder, why did he do that? Was this the wrong thing to do? Jesus made a comment on this event. He talks about it in the Gospel of Matthew. At the time, Jesus and his disciples were walking through fields. They were taking some heads of grain, picking them, rubbing them together in their hands, and the disciples were eating that grain. And the Pharisees were all upset with David, or excuse me, upset with Jesus and his disciples saying, oh look, they're harvesting and they're threshing on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you remember David, the time when he was starving, the time when he was hungry, backed in 1 Samuel 21? This is what David said, or Jesus said. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those with him, those were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. God's law was not intended to be a club to beat people. It was intended and given to us to be a blessing to help people. I don't know if you realize that. All of God's laws, not intended to take life away, but actually they're all to give life. And in this particular case, God's law should not be used as a club so that Jesus' disciples are starving on the Sabbath. And it should not be used as a club so David, who is famished and starving, cannot find any bread to eat. And the idea was God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now at this point, there's an important digression for our story. The significance of this next verse will only become apparent in the next chapter when we get to it next week. It says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Remember, all the servants of Saul have been told to aid Saul in killing David. They were to assist Saul in this grisly task. This man, Doeg, he is the chief of Saul's herdsmen. He is the one in charge of the flocks, who also was a shepherd who had been in charge of flocks, who was rising rapidly in Israel and would be a real threat to his job. David. So this guy is not really a fan of David. He's been told he's by Saul he's to help kill David. He's also an Edomite. Edomites are descendants of Esau, and throughout Scripture, they're the enemies of God's people. So here, there just happens to be Doeg the Edomite lurking in the corner seeing David and Ahimelech talk. Just tuck that away. This is sort of like an antichrist figure. The significance of this man will show up in the next chapter. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a, a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my spear nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. He's continuing in his lie. 
you know, it was haste to get out of town, but that's because his wife let him outside of the window. Remember that? <laughs> that's not why he forgot. He doesn't have his sword, not because he's on king's business. Now, this is a very strange request. I mean, think of it this way. You come to the, the chief priest. Do you happen to have a sword around here? It's like somebody showing up at the church office and saying, you guys have a handgun I could use? I mean, we don't keep those around here, just in case you're wondering. When it comes to defense, all we have is the mop. You know, that's all there is. So what makes him think that they would have a sword here in the tabernacle? The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, take it, for there is none but that here. Now, personally, I'm going to give you my own opinion. I think David knows full well that the sword of Goliath is kept in the city of Nob, right there. Remember, after David killed Goliath, who took all of Goliath's weapons? David did. David knows exactly what has happened to this stuff. And I think this is probably the whole reason he came to Nob in the first place. He's on the run. He needs to get a sword. I know where the best sword of all is kept. And if I ask for it, certainly they will give it to me. That's what I think is going on here. And look how David responds when he, gets, when he comes to getting his hands on this weapon. Notice the tone of how he says things. David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Well, I'm sure there's no sword like Goliath's. The guy was nine feet tall. I'm sure Goliath's sword is huge. It is visually impressive. I'm sure it's one of the best ones out there since he was the Philistine champion. And at first, doesn't this seem to be a good idea? You don't have a sword, so run to Nob, get Goliath's sword, use a lie to trick people into giving it to you. Sounds like a good idea until you think about it a little bit more. When David went into battle with Goliath, remember how he refused to use King Saul's sword because he was trusting in God for the victory? not in King Saul's sword for the victory. It didn't matter how impressive Goliath's sword was that day because God was in charge of the outcome of the battle. Goliath's sword failed him. David is now turning to Goliath's sword in his fear and his worry and anxiety instead of turning to God. Goliath's swords failed Goliath in the battle. So why does David think that that same sword will be rescue for him in the battles that he faces? David is not trusting at this point in God to save him. He is turning to Goliath's impressive sword to save him. David's fallen a long way, hasn't he? Not the same person that went into the valley to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Remember what David said in 1 Samuel 17 about swords? And that all this assembly may know, the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, Goliath, into our hands. So David, on the run, in fear, and anxiety and stress is decided that he is the one that has to save himself. 
and he's doing it by lying to people. He's doing it by now trusting in the worldly impressiveness of a sword instead of trusting in God. Now, here's my question. Have you been there? Have you been at the time when you face stress and worry and anxiety? And so you turn to deception and lies and half-truths. As you face stress, worry, and anxiety, you try to find your security for your future in a physical and worldly thing instead of the God of the universe who loves you, who cares about you, and has promised to protect us. Maybe for you it's not a sword. Maybe it's a bank account. Maybe it's a position in a company. Something that's your security for your future instead of your God. That's what David is doing. Turning to worldly things instead of his God. And the next thing we see is this. David flees to Gath. You know, it's only a matter of time when you're starting to tell lies and rely on yourself instead of God that you end up going to godless places and end up relying on godless people. And that's exactly what David does next. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. There are another indications in this book, incidentally, that Saul had incredible power in the entire land of Israel, that he had everybody under his finger. David was convinced there was no place he could go in the land of Israel where he would be safe from Saul's grasp. So he decided to run, not just the two miles to Nob, but he ran the 25 miles southwest all the way out of Israel to the city of Gath. He went into Philistine territory. The city of Gath is one of the Philistines' chief cities. David figures that if he can hide out in Gath, this would be the last place that Saul would ever look for him because Saul had no authority there. Those were his enemies. So hiding among the enemies he thought would be a really good idea. He could just blend in the crowd. Well, David couldn't have been more wrong. David doesn't blend in the crowd. The people of Gath, the Philistines, know him and they know him well. What a dumb idea to show up in the city of Gath wearing guess whose sword? Goliath's sword. The unique sword that everybody knows about. And David may have forgotten about the 200 Philistine foreskins for his bridal price, but I'll guarantee you the mothers and fathers of those people and the widows have not forgotten about David. David may have forgotten about how utterly he decimated the ranks of the Philistines in battle. But the Philistines didn't forget about it. And as soon as he shows up, it seems like the Philistines are on to him and they arrest him. He is taken into custody. We read this. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. So David is depressed. He doesn't see there's any way that he'll be able to survive. Well, the Philistines look at him very differently. 
the Philistines actually consider him the king of the land. This is, now, nobody in Israel considers David the king at this point. We've only seen so far that God has said he will be king. Samuel, when he anointed him, said he will be king. Jonathan, in the last chapter, said, I know you will be king. But here now, the Philistines, after they look at what God has been doing in his life, and the way God, the trajectory of how God has been doing things, says he is going to be the king. Remember, Saul has only killed his thousands. We heard the song. David has killed his tens of thousands. This guy is here, is a prize, a prize of war, the one guy we want to capture, and he just walked right into our grasp. David thought it was a good idea to trust in his own wisdom. Turns out to be a really, really bad idea. In fact, this is what we read. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. This is the first time we read about in the scriptures that David was actually afraid. He's not just a little bit afraid. He is very much afraid. He is terrified. When he tried to rely on his own wisdom and tried to get help from ungodly people in ungodly places, it ended up being a really, really bad idea. He was captured. He was in prison. He is what we're going to see tormented and tortured as they plan to kill him. It was a terrible idea. Now, let me ask you. Don't we do the same thing, though? When we're stressed, when we're worried, when life is falling apart, isn't it easy to start to turn to help from ungodly people and go to ungodly places? Anybody been there? I've done that. Same thing David does. Now, at this point, David is going to try something really on the crazy edge to get out of this. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Now this little phrase, in their hands, indicates to us at this point we see he is obviously arrested. He is chained. And David is going to pretend to be insane. He is going to be literally drooling all over the place. He is chained, it says, to the city gate. So as everybody walks in, they see him, they make fun of him, they mock him, probably kick him. So David pretends insanity, and he's literally scratching, ruining the city gate. I don't know if he's using his fingernails, he's using sticks, he's using rocks. He's just destroying things. Now, uh, David's pretend insanity and vandalizing property actually sort of works. We read this. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I mean, shall this fellow come into my house? Excuse me, there we go. Saul's servants finally get the chance to bring their prize 
possession, David into King Achish's presence. And he, David comes in, he's drooling all over the place, making weird sounds. He's scratching up the walls. And you can see Achish going, my wife just painted that in a new color. I mean, he is going to ruin this place if we leave him around here. Wait till my wife is done with me on this one. It's like, get him out of here. I don't need a lunatic around the house. Don't I have enough lunatics? And incidentally, the implied part in the Hebrew is the guys who brought David must obviously be lunatics for thinking he's some kind of prized possession of war. Now, in that day, you don't know, but this is historical background. People who were insane, who were lunatics, there was no insane asylums for them. They were usually brought out into the wilderness, let go, and allowed to fend for themselves. David, now that he is considered insane, is brought out into the wilderness by the Philistines. He is let go and allowed to fend for himself. David is set free. Now, David in Gath, we need to know, has hit the absolute bottom of his life. He's learned no good to start trusting in your lies. No good to try trusting in Goliath's weapon. It didn't save him at all when he came into town. No good to start going to ungodly people and ungodly places. In fact, when David hit the absolute bottom of his life, as he was chained to that city gate of Gath, as he finally turned, stopped trusting in himself, and called out to God for help. And there's this interesting thing that takes place. A number of the Psalms in our Bible were written in this exact period of time. And in these Psalms, we have an in, a window of insight into what was taking place in David's heart in these moments. Let me show you. Psalm 56 is a Psalm he wrote immediately after he was freed from the control of the Philistines. David writes this, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me, steps on me, all day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. Can you picture him at the city gate? Chained to the edge of the gate, people literally walking all over him. For many attack me proudly. But when I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in you. Not my lies, not Goliath's sword. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I'm not going to be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Finally turning back to God. And then a little later in that psalm, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see the tears in David's brokenness in this moment? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Everyone else hates me and among the Philistines. They're all trying to kill me. But God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's put his trust in God alone. 
And then we get to the end of the psalm and he says this, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. God, you're the one who saved me. It wasn't my acting career as I pretended to be insane. God, you're the one who ultimately saved me out of certain death in the hands of the Philistines. You get all the credit. I don't. And then Psalm 32, he wrote at this time, thanking God for rescuing him. He said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver them. Now, I want you to notice here when Tom, David writes these two Psalms, he's not just talking about his experience of calling out to God and stopped trusting in himself, but he's talking about what will be our experience of when we call out to God and stop trusting in ourselves to rescue ourselves when the bottom of the world, of our, the bottom of our life falls out. That's what David is doing. He's teaching us who to trust in and where to go to when life falls apart. It's God. Now, the last scene is this, the cave of Adullam. David departed from there and escaped. Is it lightweight? I hope that timer is wrong. Uh, escaped the, the cave of, of Adullam. Still alone, David at this point runs for his life. And where he runs to is just outside of Philistine territory and just inside of Israelite territory. And it's in a rocky area that's filled with caves. And there's this one cave called the cave of Adullam. And this is a place where we find David gets a chance to rest. David gets a chance to breathe. David gets a chance to reflect. And what is this near-death experience in his life? And David will write some more psalms in this time. By the way, David is completely alone at this point. He can't go down to the Philistines. They will kill him. He can't go further into Israel because they will kill him. He's all alone. And he writes Psalms 57 and Psalm 142 at this time. Look at the window of him in this one. He calls to God, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your rings, I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Is that what life is like for him at this point? Storms of destruction all around him. Everybody wants to kill him. I'm gonna rest in you as my protection. And God, you're is the one who will have to fulfill your purpose for me. I'm not gonna try and make it happen on my own. No. Then we read Psalm 142. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the paths where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. 
But I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They are too strong for me. God, you're the only one who can rescue me. I have no place I can go. I can't go to the Philistines. I can't go into Israel. I'm all alone in the cave. You're the one who's going to have to carry out your purpose. You're the only one who can rescue my life. And it's in that time of darkness, aloneness, where all he has is God to rely on and all he's calling out to God to answer his prayers that God shows up. And I love the way this corner turns. And then it says, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Can you picture David all alone for weeks in this cave? And then he sees people showing up on the horizon. At first he's hiding, and then he's recognizing it. The brothers who mocked him when he went out to fight Goliath are now coming to be with him and to support him. Can you imagine the hugs? Can you imagine the tears when your family and your brothers show up to say, I'm going to be with you, when your mother and dad show up? And he gets his own mom's, his mom's home cooking once again. Isn't it true that in the dark times and the depressing times of life, one of the good gifts God gives us to help us through is family? Isn't that true? So we're not alone? And God gives him his family to support him in this time. And then we read this, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. There's a lot of people who are probably upset with Saul's leadership at this point. Now all of a sudden, he's slowly gathering an army around him. And then we read, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Incidentally, this goes from the southwest corner of Israel to the southeast corner of Israel. He crosses all the way to the other side of the nation with his 400 men and his parents. And the reason he goes there, by the way, is the Moabites are enemies of Saul, but the Moabites are not enemies of David. We read this, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. The reason he wants his parents to be there is because he knows he's going to be on the run. But you know who David's great-grandmother was? Ruth, the Moabite. So he brings his parents back to what is hometown territory and asks the Moabite king to care for them. And he does. What we find at this point, David seems to have found some rest there. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So he's in the Moabite territory. He's able to be with 400 men in the fortress. All of a sudden, he's finally got some rest. He's out of Saul's grasp. He's in another land. Ah, I can finally breathe. And this happens. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. God's prophet shows up and says, Enough rest, enough recuperation. Now it's time to go back to the land of Judah where Saul wants to kill you. Face your future and trust 
your God. He saved you a dozen times before. He saved you from the Philistines again when you finally called on him. Will David turn and go back home? We read this. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth, which is, by the way, dead smack in the center of Israel. And Saul will return to hunting him down again. Now the question is, when the stress begins to come up, when the anxiety begins to come up, will David turn back to his lies? Will David turn back to his schemes and trusting in worldly things like Goliath's sword? Will he go to godless people and godless places? Or in the midst of all that anxiety, will he cast his trust in God alone? The answer to that is what you'll have to find out by coming back next week. Now what do we learn? Quickly, I'll cover this. Three things I want to point out to you. The first thing that comes screaming out of this passage to which is this. When life falls apart, we must not try to save ourselves by lies, trusting in worldly sources of security, like Goliath's sword, turning to godless places or trusting in godless people. Turn to the God who loves us, who has not forgotten us and promises to fulfill his purposes to us. That we must remember as we go into this week. Secondly, it's obvious in this one, when we turn our back on God, he will never turn his back on us. David turned his back on God in a big way. But when he finally came back to God, as he was calling out to God in the city of Gath, God was ready and willing to come and help him. The same is true for you. I don't know how far from God you have run. I don't know what you have done. I don't know how many times you have failed him. But you need to know that God is facing you right now with open arms. He loves you. You may turn your back on him, but he will never turn his back on you. And lastly is this. After God saves us and restores us, he calls us to trust him and obey his word even if it's hard. David, it's time to go back to Israel. Even if it's not going to be any fun, just trust me as you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. We can so much identify with David's darkness and despondency and, and brokenness. We can so much identify with trying to save ourselves instead of trusting in you lies and worldly strength and godless people and godless places. Forgive us for those things, Father. I pray as we look at how David learned that in the times of darkness and depression and anxiety, that the thing to do is to turn to God and call out and trust in him and that you provide rescue. May we be men and women who when we face those similar times in our life, we also turn to you rather than trusting in ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.